You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. When I started this show nearly seven years ago, I can say that the area of polar exploration was not really in my wheelhouse. I knew the big stories, but even then, just at a very high level. Well, things have changed a lot since those early days of the show, and we've covered the Franklin Expedition, Fridjof Nansen, and one of the titans of polar exploration, Ernest Shackleton. I've learned so much since we started the show, one of those things being how many amazing stories there are about the exploration of the Arctic and Antarctic. So when I set out to cover another polar expedition or explorer, the only question was, which one? The biggies are probably Scott, Perry, and Amundsen, but there's so many others. The Jeanette Expedition, Bellingshausen, James Clark Ross, and many others. Well, in the end, as I pondered all of these great stories, I focused on the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, which covers 25 years from 1897 to 1922. We talked about much of this era with Shackleton, who really towered over the age. And the question that sort of popped up in my head was, where did it all start? We have this amazing period. I mean, just look at the name, the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. That sounds awesome. So how did it all happen? What got the ball rolling? Well, the answer to that is the first voyage of discovery of this heroic age, the Belgica Expedition, which went from 1897 to 1899. The Belgica and her crew would become the first people to spend the winter in the Antarctic region, and in the process open the door for so many others. So, I have a few notes about the series as we get going. 1. There's a map of Belgica's route on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Check that out to understand the general location of the events of this series. 2. I usually title my shows after the leader of an expedition, but that didn't seem right for this show. The story is really a cast of characters, not unlike the Franklin Expedition. The expedition's leader is Adrien de Gerlache, but there are so many other men who are just as important. This includes American Frederick Cook, who would later claim to be the first man to reach the North Pole, and a young Norwegian, Roald Amundsen, who would go on to be perhaps the greatest of the polar explorers. These men are, in their own way, critical to the Belgica expedition. 3. The Belgica expedition was conceived and launched as an enterprise of the nation of Belgium. You know what language they speak in Belgium? No, it's not Belgiumese, as someone once suggested to me. It's French and Dutch, also called Flemish, and even some German. All three languages are the official languages of Belgium. But there's more. Belgium only has about 40 miles, or 65 kilometers, of shoreline. Because of this, sailing isn't a big deal amongst the population. And that meant roughly half the crew would be foreigners. 
Most were Norwegians, but there were men from Poland, France, America, and even Romania on board. All this means we're going to have a bunch of really hard-to-pronounce names, so forgive me. I will do my best. And finally, I want to mention the sources of our show. The expedition offers a ton of great original source material. There were three or four books written by those who participated in the expedition, and there are at least nine or ten diaries and journals that still exist from the original crew. However, what didn't exist was a modern English-language book about the expedition. That is until 2021 with the release of Madhouse at the End of the Earth, The Belgica's Journey into the Dark Antarctic Night by Julian Sancton. This is really a fantastic book. The author brings together all these great source materials and tells the story of the Belgica in a really compelling fashion. And if you like this podcast, I highly recommend checking out Sancton's book. I have listed it on the website. Also, because of all this great source material, we have all sorts of details about the expedition. This means we will get down into the nitty-gritty of the endeavor, which will take a little time, so be patient and enjoy this great story. Anyhow, that is it for notes. Let's get going, the story of the Belgica expedition. Let's start our tale by talking a bit about our destination, Antarctica. We know now that Antarctica is a continent, but for much of history, that wasn't the case. People suspected there was a big landmass at the South Pole, but no one could prove it. The weather and the ice were just too crazy and dangerous. British explorer James Cook had been the first person to cross the Antarctic Circle, which is at about 66 degrees south, but was stopped by the ice about 75 miles short of land at 71 degrees 10 minutes south. Only three men had ever crossed the 70 degrees south mark at the time of the Belgica expedition. The first actual recorded sighting of land wasn't until 1820, although it's possibly whalers or sealers had seen the continent before then. In the early 1840s, James Clark Ross completed some of the most extensive explorations of the continent, discovering the Ross Sea and Victoria land, as well as charting 900 kilometers or 560 miles of new coastline. He reached Ross Island, sighting the volcanoes Mount Erebus and Mount Terror, which were named after his expedition's vessels. There was also an extraordinary ice shelf, 250 miles long, or 460 kilometers, which today is called the Ross Ice Shelf. But no one really knew much about Antarctica. Was it one big landmass or a collection of islands? What was beyond the ice along the coast? And while men had landed on some of the smaller islands that dotted the shores of Antarctica, the first confirmed landing on the continental mass didn't happen until 1895 when a whaling ship reached Cape Adair. Now, polar exploration would suffer one of its greatest catastrophes with the loss of the Franklin Expedition in the late 1840s. 129 men set out to find the Northwest Passage. None of them came back. The lost Franklin Expedition dimmed the enthusiasm for polar exploration. Were the lives of so many young men worth it to map some icy blocks and desolate islands? Now, I want to stress that enthusiasm for polar exploration dimmed, but it did not die. There were other unsuccessful attempts to reach the North Pole or sail the Northwest Passage. Some of them ended in tragedy, like the Jeanette Expedition, which lost 20 of its 33 members. Others saw degrees of success, like Fridjof Nansen, when he got to within 250 miles of the Pole. But even as the end of the 19th century approached, little was known about Antarctica, and there had been no major expeditions to the continent for half a century. However, in the late 1800s, there were fewer and fewer places left in the world that could be called unknown. Africa, for instance, had gone from a big blank on the map to horribly exploited in a few decades. The exceptions were the Poles, both north and south. The proximity of the Arctic to Europe and the United States made the North Pole a priority for Western politicians and scientists. But it wasn't long before people set their sights on Antarctica. 
In June of 1895, the Sixth International Geographical Congress, meeting in London, determined that the exploration of the Antarctic was a top priority. To be honest, the Antarctic was the biggest blank of any blank on the map. People were fascinated by it because of the possibilities. Could people be living there? Could colonies be established there? What resources, such as minerals and gems, could be found? No one really knew, not even a bit. What they did know was that it was a unique environment surrounded by ice. It was cold and terribly dangerous. And thus, around 1890 or so, various nations, people, and organizations began investigating the idea of an Antarctic expedition. And that, my friends, is the cue to introduce one of the key people to our story, Adrian Victor Joseph de Gerlache de Gummery, or more simply, Adrian de Gerlache. Everything starts with him and would not have been possible without his efforts. So let's back up and talk about this young man. Adrian de Gerlache was born in 1866 in Halset, Belgium. He came from one of the oldest aristocratic families in Belgium. A relative, Baron Etienne Constantine de Gerlache, had been the principal author of the first Belgium constitution in 1831, and he had been the nation's first prime minister, albeit for just 11 days. Adrian de Gerlache's family had a long tradition of military service. His father was a colonel in the Belgium army. His brother was lieutenant. But young Adrian was a different sort of person. He was reserved and thoughtful. He was fascinated by the sea, and as a child, he spent hours making detailed models of ships. His parents, Auguste and Emma, endured his fascinations, even if they were a little odd. Adrian would attend university in Brussels at age 16. He excelled in school, but showed little interest in the military. In 1883, at the age of 17, he enlisted as an apprentice sailor on a transatlantic ocean liner. He made three voyages over the next couple of years, all to the United States, as a cabin boy. And you know what? He loved it. He loved the ocean. He loved everything about ships and sailing. However, Adrian's father disapproved as he saw this beneath his social class. Thus, to please his family, Adrian began to study engineering, but he was clearly miserable. It got so bad, he began to have health problems. Thus, he quit school, and in January of 1886, he enlisted in the Belgian Navy. Now, let us be clear. The Belgian Navy was not much of a navy. As I said, the nation only had a total of about 40 miles of coastline. The Navy's main job was to keep an eye on the ferry service that crossed the North Sea. No matter, Dagerlache thrived in his new surroundings. He was a natural sailor with a keen mind and a knack for reading the winds and currents. It was not long before he was an officer in training and one of Belgium's top naval cadets. The next few years would see Dagerlache earn his stripes as a sailor. As there weren't lots of opportunities in the Belgium Navy, he saw service on the ships of other nations. He also got to understand the dangers and terrors of being a sailor. Example, on a voyage to San Francisco around Cape Horn in South America, his British ship hit some rocks off Tierra del Fuego and had to be abandoned. And so, Dagerlash saw service around the world, ending up as a full lieutenant overseeing the Ostend to Dover ferry route. It was during this last stint that Dagerlash would encounter Belgium's king, Leopold II. Now, King Leopold was, in my opinion, as well as most of the world, an awful man. He basically treated the Congo as his own personal property, and the exploitation of the native people and the land was horrible. If you want to know more about that, listen to our series on Pierre Savignon de Braza. But the awfulness of the man aside, I want to share a story that has conflicting information. In one version of the story, the king reportedly sought out Dagerlash, whose family was well known in the aristocratic circles of Belgium, and offered the young man a job mapping the rivers of the Congo Free State. But Dagerlash wasn't interested in the gig and turned the king down. 
The other version of the story has Daycare Lodge, bored by life overseeing a ferry route, offering his services to the king, and was turned down. Whichever one is true, I don't really know, but going forward, Daguerre Lash will have little to no support from the Belgian crown for his upcoming expedition. Anyhow, it was clear that Daguerre Lash was looking for something bigger in life, and polar exploration had always fascinated him. In 1891, word got out that Swedish explorer Adolf Erik Nordenskjöld was forming an expedition to go to Antarctica. Daguerre Lash wrote Nordenskjöld, offering him his services. He got no reply, and the expedition never happened. And so, over the next few years, Daguerlache began to consider something quite audacious. Why not form an Antarctic expedition of his own? Other nations were considering it, including Sweden, Britain, and Germany. Why not Belgium? And thus the plot unfolds. Daguerlache understood that to succeed, he would need to raise money. To do this, he proposed a Belgian Antarctic expedition as one of science and knowledge and the betterment of mankind, plus a way for the tiny and young Belgium, the country was only about 65 years old, to grow as a world leader. It would be about patriotism and science. Adventurers would love the idea of going off on a voyage of discovery, while scientists and scholars would revel in visiting one of the last places on Earth where you could find new plants and animal life. Now, Daguerlache had so much going against him. He was young, not even 30, and had no polar experience, or really any experience, as an explorer. And the Antarctic, despite the allure it might offer people, had demonstrated no real way to make money. The people who had money wanted to use it to make more. Icebergs and frozen wastelands were not the makings of a business plan. However, Daguerlache did have one really important thing going for him, his name. The name Daguerlache would get him into doors and in front of important people. And thus, in 1894, Daguerlache sent a detailed proposal for an Antarctic expedition to the Royal Belgian Geographical Society in Brussels. The proposal was evidently well received as he was invited to present it to the entire society in January of 1895. And so the 28-year-old de Gerlache went before the society and laid out his idea. It was a voyage of science, he told them. Over the course of two years, they would collect zoological, botanical, oceanographical, and meteorological data. They would map the coastline from the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula to Victoria Land on the other side of the globe. The Antarctic Peninsula, by the way, is that spear of land that points up toward the tip of South America, the latter of which is about a thousand kilometers or 600 miles away across the Drake Passage. The peninsula is also known as Graham Land. On one side of the peninsula is the Weddell Sea, and on the other side is the Bellingshausen Sea. Degelash proposed to depart in September of 1896, reach Antarctica, and explore that summer, and then winter in Australia. He would then go back the following summer. To top everything off, he then added something everyone loved, a first. People love records and firsts. First person to do this, first person to do that, first person to reach a place, that sort of thing. For this, he proposed to land a four-man team in Victoria land and establish a winter camp. These men would then make a dash for the South Magnetic Pole in the spring. This would, of course, be a very cool first, and no one had ever spent a winter inside the Antarctic Circle, where the sun completely disappears for several months. This would be another first. In the end, Adrien de Galache did well. The society loved his enthusiasm and his ambition, and thus the Belgian Antarctic Expedition was born. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. The Belgian Antarctic Expedition now existed, at least on paper. One thing we have learned over the years of doing this podcast is that expeditions don't get going without money, and Adrian Dagerlosch did not have the estimated 300,000 francs needed to make the expedition a reality. A proposal was sent to King Leopold, but there was no response. It's possible the king resented Dagerlosch for refusing his offer to map the Congo. Dagerlosch didn't have the money for the project, but he did have family connections, he thus made appeals to the wealthy and aristocratic families of Belgium. That got him a lot of good luck messages, but no cash. And then, just as the entire affair appeared to be sunk, 57-year-old Ernest Solvay, Belgium's richest man, donated 25,000 francs. Solvay made the donation in the interest of science. That donation spurred others to give. It wasn't as if the floodgates were opened, but it was a start. And thus, Dagerlosch turned to the nuts and bolts of organizing his expedition. The first thing he needed was a ship. He would like to have had a custom-built vessel, but that was unrealistic. He just didn't have the money for that. And so he turned his attention to the Norwegian whaling fleet, which included some of the best and toughest polar ships in the world. In March of 1895, Dagerlosch began a three-month whaling and seal hunting voyage off Greenland. The ship he was sailing on was on the market, and this was a great way to give it a test run. It was the first time he'd ever been in polar waters. Dagerlosch was not a big fan of hunting. It made him queasy and unsettled. On the voyage, however, he spotted another ship amongst the whaling fleet, a small 11-year-old three-masted bark named the Patria. The Patria was the smallest of the whaling fleet, less elegant and graceful. She was about 118 feet long, or 36 meters, and registered 263 tons. However, Dagerlosch liked what he saw of the ship and understood the qualities of the vessel. She was tough, ramming through the ice with little effort. The only problem was that the ship was not for sale. Dagerlosch returned to Belgium without a ship as money was still woefully short and donations from the upper crust of society had tapered off. And that is when the Royal Belgian Geographical Society agreed to mount a public campaign for the enterprise. It began in January of 1896 and the response was amazing. 2,500 people donated to the fund. Donations as little as a single franc came in. People excited to be a part of such a bold and thrilling venture. The Society helped by organizing a variety of events, including hot air balloon rides, music concerts, and lectures. This strategy would be used by later explorers, including Ernest Shackleton. In the end, the public campaign raised 115,000 francs for the expedition. The Belgian government, upon seeing the public's enthusiasm for the project, contributed 100,000 in May. And with that, Daguerlache's expedition was on the brink of reality. It was really quite extraordinary, as this young naval officer had managed to do what governments had been trying to get done for nearly a decade. With money in the bank, Dagerlosch went about getting a ship. 
He asked about the rugged little whaler that he had seen the previous year, the Patria, and this time it was available for sale. The price would be 70,000 francs. On July 5, 1896, Dagerlash went and picked up his ship, renaming it the S.Y. Belgica. Belgica, by the way, is Latin for Belgium, and the S.Y. stands for Steam Yacht. The ship technically was not a part of the Belgian Navy and flew under the flag of the Yacht Club of Antwerp. The ship was an outstanding example of the rugged whaling and sealing ships of the age. She was constructed of pine and the hull was covered in more than four inches of thick greenheart planks. The bow had been reinforced to enable her to operate in the ice. Over the next year, Dagerlosch would work with shipbuilder Lars Christensen to improve the ship for the upcoming expedition. They added layers of wood and felt for better insulation. Also, there was a new steel propeller and a 150-horsepower engine added, plus a dark room for the expedition's photographer. And soon, Dagerlosch would be adding cutting-edge scientific gear. Quick note, at this point, Dagerlosch knew that he would not be departing on his journey in 1896. Instead, the departure date had been moved back a full year. So, in late 1896 and early 1897, the young Belgian naval officer had to not only outfit and provision his ship, he needed to hire a crew. And this was a precarious thing. And that is because Dagerlosch had sold the Belgian Antarctic Expedition, or the Belgica Expedition, as it would later be called, as a source of national pride. He and his backers thus wanted the crew to consist of all Belgians. Well, that was a problem. And that's because sailing was just not that big of a thing in Belgium, and thus qualified men were hard to find. And I'll add that qualified Belgian sailors, with polar experience, simply did not exist. By the way, Dagerlosch had a deep fear of the press. He was always concerned about what the newspapers were going to say regarding the expedition. And thus, if he brought on any foreigners, he feared he would be taken to task for abandoning the all-Belgian status of the expedition. Another issue Dagerlosch was running into was that Antarctic exploration was not really a profitable affair for enterprising individuals. People saw money in places such as Africa, Asia, or South America. Gold, rubber, oil, whatever. A person looking for some profit and adventure was drawn to other locations, not to the unknowns of Antarctica. This made many qualified men back off from being a part of the expedition. Regarding the scientists, that wasn't necessarily a problem. Many were excited at the idea of being a part of the project. However, Dagerlosch's lack of financing and the delays in leaving spooked many, and thus quite a few good men turned down a chance to be a part of the expedition or backed out to pursue other commitments. In the end, the crew, which numbered 23, would be a mix of nationalities. Roughly half would be Belgian. Of the others, there was a Pole, an American, a Romanian, and a Frenchman, but the majority of the foreigners would be Norwegian. I'll mention a few of the crew, but not all of them. We will certainly introduce others as they come up in this story. The first person I'll talk about is Emil Danko, Dagarlash's old friend. Danko was a lieutenant in the Belgian army. He was not a sailor or scientist, but he was enthusiastic, loyal, and trusted by Dagarlash. He also had some money, so he would serve without pay. He even donated a few thousand francs to the expedition. The next person I'll mention was hired after sending Dagarlash a letter in July of 1896. The man had served a year aboard a whaler, asked for no pay, and said he was an accomplished skier. This interested Dagerlosch, who imagined that when his team made a dash for the magnetic South Pole, it would be done on skis. The man's name was Roald Amundsen. Amundsen is, of course, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, polar explorer in history. He was only 24 at the time, tall and muscular, the epitome of a Norwegian sailor. He had not been a great student, but he was incredibly ambitious and inventive. He already had a deep desire for adventure and glory. 
The Belgica expedition, he believed, would give him the experience he needed to carry out his own adventures. Descartes was so impressed by Amundsen, he would name him first mate, which effectively put him third in command, behind Descartes and the captain of the ship, Georges Lequante. And speaking of Georges Lequante, let's take a moment to talk about him. The man was a lieutenant in the Belgian Navy. He had originally been a successful artillery officer, but he had been assigned to the Navy, where he thrived. Lequante was an outstanding mathematician, and his experience in the artillery meant he would oversee the explosives being brought on the expedition, if they were ever needed. Getting Lequante as his second command had been a coup for Degarlas, as qualified Belgians had been hard to find. There were other people as well, a brilliant young Polish chemist-slash-geologist, a former French foreign legionnaire, a French cook who would become the most hated man on the ship, and a Romanian zoologist. But as I said, we will talk about those specific people as needed. Now, regarding the crew that Degarlas had assembled, to be polite, let's just say that there were some issues. Sailors were an unpredictable lot to begin with, but the Belgica's crew was exceptionally challenging. The crew had more than its fair share of social misfits, drinking problems, and discipline issues. But the divide between the Belgians and the other sailors was a real problem. The Belgians resented the Norwegians, who had more experience. Some of the Belgians simply refused to follow orders given by a Norwegian. Now, this might not be an issue if you had a firm commander, but Adrian de Gerlache was not a firm commander. He was a guy who intensely disliked confrontation and wanted to be liked by others. He often ignored problems that arose and hoped they would go away, or he would delegate to others to figure out solutions. It wasn't long before cliques formed on the ship, which could lead to tricky and often dangerous situations. And it was obvious from the start that the ship was in for a rocky voyage. Even before departing, one officer simply deserted, while the chief mechanic was fired after disappearing on a two-day drinking binge. A sailor added to the crew not long before departing, Antonio Dobrowolski, a Polish separatist who had escaped the prisons of Tsarist Russia, immediately noted the discontent amongst the crew. Dobrowolski quickly saw that De Garlash was not a leader, calling him a poser. Dobrowolski, by the way, would end up working as a scientist on the expedition. Anyhow, De Garlash continued to get his expedition ready for departure. To the very end, he was raising money. There were tours of the ship, plus a million dinners and receptions. Degerlach hated this part of the job and was thrilled to be nearing a departure. Belgica would finally depart Antwerp on August 16, 1897. 20,000 people lined the docks to send off their new heroes. Cannons were fired, foghorns blew, a band played the Belgian national anthem. The ship was so heavily loaded with supplies, the deck was just one and a half feet, or half a meter, above the waterline. There was coal, provisions, food, gear, and everything needed for the upcoming expedition. This included half a ton of tonite, an explosive similar to dynamite, but more powerful. Belgica and her crew had 10,000 miles ahead of them to reach their destination. And of course, that means the ship would immediately run into some problems. One of the engine's condensers overheated and broke down. The ship thus had to pull into Ostend, about 60 miles or 100 kilometers from Antwerp, for repairs. This was a public relations disaster. Degerlach tried to keep the delay away from the press, but failed. He also rehired the chief mechanic who had been recently fired for drunkenness. Not a great way to get the entire thing going. Oh, and there was another issue. Degerlach had lost his doctor, and it was madness to set off on such a venture without a qualified surgeon. The expedition's original doctor had been handpicked by the Secretary General of the Royal Belgian Geographical Society. Well, Degerlach feared the man would work against him and try to take control of the expedition. 
and thus, with the help of his father, he got the guy fired from the job. A new physician was hired, but he had to bail after his sister got sick. This left Dagerlach scrambling for a replacement. And for that, we are going to shift our story to New York City. Because the man who I'm about to introduce is probably the most important character in our tale, other than Commandant Dagerlach. Frederick Cook was a 32-year-old physician with a modest yet growing practice in New York City. He was the son of a German immigrant who had served as a doctor in the Civil War, but had died in 1870, leaving his wife Magdalena with five children and not much money. Frederick Cook's mother thus worked in a sweatshop to provide for her family, and the kids all started working as soon as they were able. Frederick got a job at the age of 12 working at a produce stand and then in a glass factory. He'd work 10-hour days, yet still go to school. Frederick was an inventive, curious, and smart boy, and he and his older brothers built up a successful milk route in the city. Cook would enroll in college to be a surgeon, all the while working long hours with his brothers. He married in 1889 and had a daughter the following year. Unfortunately, the child died within hours of being born. His wife Libby died a week later from peritonitis. Peritonitis is the inflammation of the belly or abdomen and is often caused by an infection from a hole in the bowel or a burst appendix. One of the last things Cook was able to do was tell his wife that he had passed his medical exams. And so here was Cook, a 25-year-old man, his heart and soul devastated. To help deal with these losses, Cook turned to something he always harbored a passion for, adventure. Cook had always loved the stories of men like Henry Morton Stanley, the famed African explorer. And then he read about the plans of American naval engineer Robert Perry to travel to the northern area of Greenland. Perry was looking for volunteers to join him. Cook went to meet Perry and essentially talked his way onto the expedition. Perry saw a fearless and passionate young man who had a magnetism to him. He was hired as the expedition's surgeon and ethnologist, the latter of which was an emerging field of study and one that Cook had no experience in. Perry's 1891-92 Arctic expedition would be a brutal introduction to life as an explorer for Frederick Cook. Early on, Perry shattered his leg and the team lived six months in a small shelter, most of it constructed by Cook. He proved to be quite an ingenious man. He adapted to a situation, figuring out how to get solutions with the materials at hand. Cook was thrilled to meet the local Inuit people, trading with them for meat, dogs, furs, and boots. They were wary of him at first, but he learned their language, and it was not long before they trusted him. They even looked at him as a sort of shaman, as he could help them with health issues. Another thing about Cook was that he quickly understood the value of the local people and the knowledge they had. From the Inuit, he learned how to work with dogs, build an igloo, and survive in the cold. Of it, he said, quote, If one must live in the Arctic, the sooner he reverts to the habits of the wilderness folk, the better. End quote. Despite the rigors of the expedition, and almost being buried alive at one point, Cook was transformed and invigorated by Greenland. He loved the thrill of exploration. He loved to learn about exotic people, like the Inuit, who he called the Arctic Highlanders. Perry was so impressed by Cook, he offered him second-in-command of his next expedition to the Arctic. Cook initially accepted, but when he asked Perry if he could publish his observations of the Inuit people in a scientific journal, he was denied. That, Perry said, was the prerogative of the expedition's leader. And thus Cook, annoyed at the treatment, resigned. Having soured on the idea of working with others, Cook decided to organize his own polar expedition. He set his sights on Antarctica so he wouldn't conflict with his old boss, Perry. Well, raising money did not go well. He ran a charter cruise to Labrador in Greenland, even bringing back two Inuit teens with him, a dozen dogs and some furs. He then put on a show, touring from town to town, 
parading the teenagers on stage and trying to raise funds for his expedition. He proved to be a natural showman. However, a polar bear hunting expedition organized by Cook, with people paying $500 each, ended in disaster when the ship hit an iceberg. He ended up losing money on that venture. Cook's last chance at raising money for his expedition led to an audience with Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men in America. Carnegie was intrigued by Cook's idea, but when he asked how such an investment could make him money, Cook could only talk about the possibility of minerals, as well as whaling and sealing. Carnegie passed. And thus, Frederick Cook was defeated. He refocused his efforts on his medical career and even began to court Anna, the sister of his late wife, and they were soon engaged. Cook was thus building a new life. His medical practice was growing and he had romance on his mind. And then on August 6, 1897, he saw a story in the newspaper about a Belgian expedition heading to Antarctica. He was amazed that a young Belgian, who had never been to the polar regions, had managed to raise enough money to fund such an enterprise. Intrigued, Cook went to the telegraph office and cabled Adrian de Garlache, offering him his services as the expedition's doctor. He even offered to pay his own way. De Garlache cabled him back, saying he already had a doctor, so thanks, but no thanks. And then, out of the blue, on August 19th, a Western Union telegram arrived at Cook's home. It wasn't French, so Cook rushed to his friend, who worked at a newspaper, and had it translated. It was from Adrien de Garlache, and he offered Cook the job as Belgica's surgeon so long as he could rendezvous with the expedition in South America. Cook replied within two hours. Yes, he could do that. It was then agreed that Cook would meet the Belgica in Rio de Janeiro. Now, it can't be overstated what the addition of Cook was to the Belgica expedition. This is a man who actually had polar experience. And I'm not talking about having gone whaling or sealing and seeing icebergs and stuff. I'm talking about having lived for an extended period in a polar region. This was a great coup for de Garlache, even if he didn't realize it. So Cook would pack up his gear and get ready to depart in early September. However, something came up that gave the man pause. His fiancée, Anna, got sick, and he was reluctant to leave her. Cook would stay for an extra couple of weeks and finally depart on September 20th, after Anna assured him that she would be fine. Cook had assembled quite a lot of gear for the journey. Two sledges, a pair of skis, a medicine chest, books, snowshoes, Arctic gear and equipment, tent-making material, plus an American flag. He was thrilled to be heading off on another adventure, writing, quote, The Antarctic has always been the dream of my life, and to be on the way, it was then my idea of happiness. End quote. And so, with Cook on his way to Rio, let's jump back to Ostead in Belgium, where the Belgica was getting ready to depart. The ship would get a visit from the king, who wished them luck, but not much else. While in port, several crewmen bolted, and others, with less experience, were added to fill their spots. And so, at sunset on August 23, 1897, the Belgica sailed out of Ostend. She was scheduled for a stop at the Madeira Islands, west of Morocco, to take on supplies. From there, it was on to Rio. Belgica's crew consisted of 13 Belgians and 10 foreigners, primarily Norwegians. There were also two cats, Svedrup and Nansen, named after the Norwegian explorers, Otto Svedrup and Fridjof Nansen. By the way, about a month before departing, Fridjof Nansen had visited Belgica while in Antwerp. He posed for photos and wished de Gerlache and the expedition all the best. To have Nansen's blessing was a sign of good luck, especially in the eyes of the Norwegian crewmen, who idolized the famous explorer. For Adrian de Gerlache, he was finally on his way. He had been planning for this moment for three years. It was through his tenacity and drive that the expedition existed. Now, getting the expedition on its way was a tremendous achievement, but let's not forget, the hard part lay ahead. No one had really explored Antarctica in over half a century. 
Daguerlache wanted to go to a place that hardly anything was known about. Was Antarctica a huge continent? Was it a handful of islands? What lay beyond the icebergs and fields of endless ice? And so, the Belgica was steaming south, and without realizing it, opening up the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And that is how we will leave things for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please join us next time when we continue this amazing story. Thanks so much, and take care. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows in our quiver of fun stuff. If you like stories about urban legends and ghosts and other creepy stuff, check out Southern Gothic as well as the family-friendly Unspookable. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.